9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to a special edition of the podcast. I'm very pleased to be joined today by Representative Debbie Dingell, who represents uh, Michigan on both the Energy and Commerce Committee and the Natural Resources Committee. Good morning, Congresswoman. Good morning. It is great to be with you. Uh, yes, it is. Although, I, you know, Michigan seems to be beset with uh, pestilence and floods these days. Uh, I, I, I have to say my my wife grew up in Ipsy, but she was born in Midland, and uh, we've been watching with some despair as Midland seems to be facing a real crisis today. Well, unfortunately, one of the dams broke, and Midland could be under nine feet of water uh, by the end of the day, so it's very disturbing. Uh, I'm very proud of Ypsilanti, which will actually is home of Rosie the Riveter and will host President Trump. Uh, but the fact of the matter is that I, I stayed up all night last night. I started studying history again. Uh, Churchill's famous statement that those that don't learn from history are doomed to repeat it. And was looking at what he did with his infrastructure bill uh, 80 years ago uh, and studying the fact in those days, his uh, what he called the New Deal program refers to what he did invest in infrastructure, roads, bridges, and dams. And the dam that broke uh, last night that's threatening Midland that you talk about right now is more, to, more than 50 years old, was condemned two years ago. And here we are. We keep kicking the can down the road. Nothing was done to fix the dam. And we have very dangerous, destructive flooding today. Yeah, well, you know, it's an, it's a, it's a, obviously, it's, it's a good point, and uh, it, it brings up something that I was going to get to a little later, but I'll get to it now. Yesterday, somebody was talking to the president, a reporter, and the reporter said something to the effect of, "So, what's your plan to get out of the economic crisis that we're in?" And the president's response was, <clears throat> "That's a very rude question." Uh, and of course, we're in the midst of an economic crisis that is without precedent. I mean, the, the, the level of unemployment is likely to exceed the levels we saw during the Great Depression. Uh, and uh, whether it's this president and this Congress or the next president, and the next Congress, the central focus is going to have to be, how do we dig our way out? And you mentioned infrastructure which is one proven way to build jobs. And of course, the infrastructure in this country, and a lot of it hasn't been revitalized since the Eisenhower years. What do you, what do you think the central focus needs to be in order to start building our way out? Well, first of all, I don't think it's a rude question to ask about the state of the economy. So I thank you for asking me about it because I think it's central right now to where we are and what the next few months and years are going to be like. And I think you are correct that when President Roosevelt, Franklin Roosevelt, became president, uh, 
he found a nation that had been devastated by the Great Depression, one in four were unemployed, our numbers may be higher than that. Uh, and he believed that you could do more than one thing. You could build bridges and roads and airports and we half of america didn't have lights and we when sundown came in the country was dark and he gave people jobs he built an infrastructure that has really become uh, one of the backbones of our economy and he treated people with dignity and they felt when they were doing these jobs that they were contributing to their communities. So while they were working and earning an income, they were also doing good. And I think that all of us, and I'm not gonna say this is a Democrat or a Republican issue, we have all kicked the can down the road for too long. We have let partisan bickering, uh, perhaps real budget discussions, but uh, I really think that FDR didn't let that be an issue that challenged him 80 years ago and that we should learn from that. But that we have waited long enough. We've got crises in this country. This dam is the latest of dams that was broken. But can anybody forget New Orleans when, when what happened there? We need to fix our aging infrastructure. And not only do we need to fix our roads, our bridges, our dams, but we also need to build out broadband. We need to make sure that rural areas and urban school children have access to the internet. We need to rebuild our schools. We need to fix aging water pipes that have lead in them that have poisoned and killed children. We need to worry about our sewage system. There is so much that we need to do. It's time to do it and at the same time give people jobs and put money ultimately back into the economy. Well, and what you're talking about is something that's, you know, people-centric. You mentioned the word dignity. We, last week, had on a, someone who grew up in Ann Arbor, who you know well, Gene Sperling, who's written a book called On Economic Dignity, uh, which is a very good book, by the way, if you haven't read it, because it essentially it says, it, we, you know, we have to put this back at the center of politics, right? It can't just be that we are looking at the stock market uh, performance or the performance of a few Wall Street firms or a few big companies as the metric for our success as a country. And yet this administration so far has directed most of the response regarding this crisis to those companies. The Money is not making it to people. It's not making it to small businesses. It's not addressing these problems. Uh, and unlike much of of, of, of Europe or even Canada, where the governments have stepped in and said, we're going to match. If we ask you to stay home, we're going to cover your salary up to 75% or 85%. We're not doing that. So we are actually choosing to deepen this, this, this crisis. Do you see any hope that between now and January, we are going to do any of the kinds of things that you're talking about? So I choose to be an optimist. Uh, and I think that this crisis has shined a magnifying glass on the fractures that we have in our society and in our community. And while I'm somebody that believes in Medicare for all and that we're the only industrialized nation in the world, it doesn't ensure that every one of its citizens has access to health care. And I'm um, an idealist, but a realist. So we're not gonna get Medicare for all before January. But I think one, we should be able to move and agree upon an infrastructure bill. 
And I think people across the country should make that, uh, it should be a grassroots movement to demand action and accountability on behalf of whoever represents them, Republican or Democrats. And I, I think the time is now. Everybody says they want one. Okay, we need it. Let's get it done. So that's one issue. I also think we've seen uh, a light shone on our supply chain. And people don't understand the trade issue. I have to say this for President Trump. Uh, you know, I was one of the people that four years ago said that I thought that President Trump could win. And everybody thought I was crazy. A lot of Republicans and most of my Democratic friends. But he understood. I will say he doesn't deliver on it. But he understood the anxiety of an auto worker back here who had never forgotten 2008. If you were an auto worker before then, you figured that if you went to work for an auto company, you played by the rules, you worked hard, that you were set for life. And we learned in 2008 that wasn't true. And that anxiety, that fear that went in the heart and soul of American auto workers is still there. He came into Michigan and talked about the trade deals that had shipped jobs overseas. And he said that he was gonna do something. I think too many Democrats still don't understand that those jobs being shipped overseas bother American working men and women. And this crisis has shown us how much of our supply chain has been shipped overseas. It's just put this huge magnifying glass that we have to, we're dependent on China for PPE equipment, that 80 to 90% of our medicines are made in China or India. And how dependent have we become on other countries and for our own national security, don't we need to bring those jobs back? And I think that you, I'm proud that in the CARES Act, I've got uh, a bill that would replenish the national stockpile and bring some of that production back home. Uh, other members are doing the same thing. I think those are two bills that we could actually see action on by this summer. Yeah. If there's a will. Yeah, you know, it, it strikes me that, you know, you're getting to something which is somewhat bigger. And that is, you know, when, when Roosevelt was doing what Roosevelt was doing, he had in mind a kind of social contract. He had a, an idea, a compact that existed between the government and the people and said, when you are in trouble, we will take care of you. When you are at risk, we will protect you. And this led to Social Security and it led to, in the, in the minds of several generations, a notion that a deal had been struck. You will be able to retire with dignity. You will um, be safe and secure within the country. You will have an opportunity to have a job. And gradually, things have gotten peeled off of that. You know, in, in Ypsilanti or, or in, you know, in the, in, the, in, in, in the Midwest, if somebody graduated high school in the 50s, and they went and got a job at a factory, and they worked at the factory for 30 years, they could take care of their family send their kid to college and retire with security. And today, if somebody graduates high school, they're nowhere. They're, 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 you know, they're, that, that part has been broken. Most Americans retire with not enough money to live their retirement. That part of the social contract has been broken. And as you say, you know, you can't, and you, without access to infrastructure, 30% of you know, people of color in inner cities and, and so forth they can't vote, they can't go to school, they can't get a job. You know, uh, in, in, internet is essential to being a citizen today. So that part of social contracts never been undertaken. Seems to me like there's a philosophical, you know, this is a little bit high and 
you know, elevated for, you know, the kind of normal discussions that we have. But it seems to me there's a kind of philosophical issue here that we've got to put at the center of the discussion in, in, in the election and after the election, which is what's the deal between the government and the American people? Look, I think we got to talk about the basic needs of human beings and, you know, challenging difficult times out of those times in the history of not only this country, but the world, you have seen good things happen. The social safety net that we still have left came out of the Great Depression. Uh, and, you know, I don't want to be up here. I want to be down here, but I'm talking about my neighbors. I'm talking about the people that I represent who right now don't know if they have a job. They don't know how they're going to put food in the table. And I'm telling you, these are people that thought they had middle-class jobs two months ago, and now they're in food lines. And they have all of these different reactions to having to go ask for the food bank to help them out while they're trying to find what their way is. And we shouldn't make people feel embarrassed or they shouldn't feel angry. We should just be there and say, we're in hard times. We're a community. We're going to help you out. Uh, it, it, it's People are worried about education. How are they going to educate their children? We've got another real crisis in this country that a, a lot of our elementary schools, K through 12, let alone the university, is going to be able to open in the fall. And the, again, it is the young children from lower income poverty areas who need that access to education, to have that equal opportunity, who are the most impacted? Because not only do they not have access to broadband, but they don't have computers or iPads to even do the online learning with. We gotta look at our consciences and our souls in this country. And we have to not look at it as hands out or becoming dependent on the government. It's called the common good. And I've been on this, um, phrase now for, I learned a lot about it, studied it in the 90s. Suddenly, common good has a real meaning because in Michigan, I'll flip to a different subject, but we have a lot of people that are really angry. You've seen them protesting. You've seen them with their guns. I respect the freedom of speech. I respect the right to protest. I was married to John Dingle. I have to respect the Second Amendment. But what right do I have and do people, my neighbors have, to not get COVID? Do I have a right to go outside or go to an airport and have people respect their physical distance so I'm not exposed to COVID? Should people wear masks to keep each other safe? I had a town hall where an, a, a man that was 70 had stage four liver cancer, no one to take care of him. And he was really angry because he had to go to the grocery store and he was afraid of the people not wearing masks and the danger and the threat to him. So what are individual rights and what is the common good? And how do you balance those needs out? These used to be theoretical. We learned them in you know, philosophy class in high school and college. They're not philosophical now. They're the real world and we're having real world discussions. Well, you and I are having real world discussion and real people in the in in across America are having real world discussions. The president of the United States is going to go to Michigan tomorrow. And already the main discussion we're having about his trip to Michigan is whether or not he's going to wear a mask. And, uh, you know, it's it seems to me that we face some uh, 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 challenges just focusing the discussion on where it ought to be. What do you think? ought to come out of a visit like the visit the president's making tomorrow to Michigan. 
Well, I, I, I'm going to tell you that the governor, the UAW, and I are all taking the same approach. I do think it's an issue about whether he'll wear a mask. So I'm going to divide this into two categories because the UAW does not want to attack the president. They want to focus on the heroes. They want to show how their workers got up, went and designed, helped design a ventilator and began producing it in a matter of weeks. And we're very proud to volunteer to help America. The governor thinks it's an opportunity, and I agree with her, to shine a light on the ingenuity of Michigan and how we are at the forefront of innovation uh, and, and talent. And I believe he's coming to the spirit of Rosie the Riveter. We can. And I think he's going to see innovation and technology and the best of what Michigan is and America is. So I don't want this to turn into some another kind of major conflict. It's an opportunity to focus on the heroes on the front line and to see what's happening. And quite frankly, all three of us are handling it that way. But um, it, it, as we what was the second part of that question? I got focused on the first part, oh, the mask. So then I want to go to the mask. I have spent nine weeks literally talking to the president of the UAW almost every day, Rory Gamble, talking to the CEOs of the autos, talking to the supplier community and to the dealers. Uh, through the closing process, I sort of, I sort of became the communicator. I, I'm a good listener and I come up, I'm a car girl. And, you know, each of those organizations has a different culture and sometimes people don't hear what's being said. So how do you close? And then quite frankly, when we reopened on Monday, I, I, I was scared to death. I feel very vested in this. At some point, we want people's jobs to be safe. We want, my first priority is human health, human life. I don't want anybody else to die. I have lost well over 30 people in the last six weeks that many of them close friends, family member, it's been really hard. I don't want anybody else to die, but we do need to reopen slowly and we want those jobs to be there for the longer term. So the UAW and the OEM, the car companies, spent a lot of time in the supplier community. They organized task Forces. They, they studied, they talked to the health experts, the scientists, the engineers, to what, how is it safe to reopen these plants? They have very intense protocols. You have to answer a series of questions before you even go in the plant. If any of them are positive, you get sent for a test, you're not allowed in the plant. You then have your temperature taken. Employees are encouraged to have their temperatures taken before they even come to work. If you have a temperature, if you've been exposed to COVID, if you're positive for COVID, one, the, the companies are paying for the test, and two, they give you sick pay for 14 days, so you're not afraid to go home or to admit that you may have symptoms. Then when you're in the plant, you have PPE equipment. They've redesigned the assembly line to keep that physical distance. You're not allowed to wander the plant. You can't eat in the cafeteria. And part of that PPE equipment is the masks. And the biggest worry Rory Gamble has long before he ever knew that President Trump was coming to the Rossonville plant was will workers follow the rules or will they get in the plant and pull that mask down and not think it matters? I mean, he talked to me about getting people to do public service ads about the importance of keeping that mask on and following the rules. Leaders lead. 
I've been in this house, except for two trips to Washington, by myself for 65 days. And anybody who knows me knows that it isn't easy for me to be by myself and to be alone. And, you know, I've had someone say, yeah, but you don't have to worry about your job or being paid. You're not working. I'm working my tail off. I'm working from 6.30 in the morning to midnight almost every night on the phone trying to help people strategize. But that's not the point. We have to listen to what the scientists and the experts say. And those experts say to be safe in the plants, you need to wear a mask. So I don't like to make, when I go to Washington, Democrats are wearing masks and some Republicans are. Safety shouldn't be a political partisan issue. We need to do what's going to keep our workers and our population safe. So uh, I wish this wasn't becoming such a big issue on Thursday. We'll see what the president does. Okay, I have, I have two more questions. One, um, one on the news and then one, one on the, the oversight hearings, the hearings with Dr. Bright. Um, but let's, let's stick with the news for a moment because the president also made some news today with a tweet in which he was uh, complaining about the uh, effort of Governor uh, Whitmer or, or actually the Secretary of State in, in, in Michigan to make it easy and safe for people to vote by using mail-in ballots. And the president said he's gonna investigate it and he may withhold money from Michigan uh, to, to stop this nefarious behavior. He, of course, votes by mail, but you know, it, hypocrisy is not something that uh, is a, you know, an effective criticism against him. What's your reaction to all this? My reaction is we have to protect our democracy and that democracy is at its best when the most people participate in it, Republican or Democrats, and that indifference or not voting is one of the greatest threats to democracy. We've seen what happened in Wisconsin. We saw scenes from Ohio and other states. People shouldn't be afraid to vote. We should not view it as a threat when we max maximize participation in the democratic process. So I was not consulted with what she did. She made a decision because Michigan's been one of the hardest hit states by COVID, by the way. We've had 51,000 cases of it. We've had more than 5,000 deaths. That's a 10% mortality rate. So we had to take this seriously. And people shouldn't be afraid to vote because they're worried about their health. So what I think she's doing is maximizing participation. It's going to Republicans and to Democrats. And the president won this state four years ago. So he could look at that as something good for him. And it is the Congress that appropriates dollars to help protect elections and give support to the states for elections. So I'm, I'm not sure under what authority the president could withhold those funds. Uh, well, he seems to be allocating funds without authority. Uh, that's something that has happened also in this administration. Uh, you were a participant in the hearings with Dr. Bright last week. Um, uh, Dr. Bright is uh, relevant in both that he uh, levied charges about the mishandling of the crisis uh, from a medical perspective, um, but also in that he's a whistleblower and that we are living in a moment where whistleblowers are under siege. We now have a um, a new case uh, at the State Department. Uh, and I'm wondering what your takeaway from the Bright hearings was on both levels, both 
as a critique of where we are with the crisis and on the role of whistleblowers? So let me be really, what I was focused on in this hearing is uh, what's going to happen. What happened? Why were we so ill-prepared when this came in December and January? And are we prepared if we see what many, including Dr. Bright, but others, the head of the CDC, are predicting that this winter could be one of the darkest, bleakest winters we've seen in our history with recurrences and peaks again, spikes of COVID cases. So we, our national stockpile was not prepared. We did not have PPE equipment. Our medicines are running short. We're learning things about medicines that work. How are we making sure we have a supply of that if we do have uh, spikes again? We're, we know that this country is not gonna be safe again until we develop vaccines. Are, is the country ready to give people vaccines? The last few months hasn't shown that we're ready. We have to make sure we're doing the production and can manufacture the doses we need. But do we have the syringes? Do we have the needles? Do we have the alcohol swabs we need? I mean, we don't have enough cotton swabs now for testing. And the tests are like a minimal part of what will be needed to vaccinate every American, let alone other people in the world. So clearly I was deeply disturbed. And quite frankly, I, I used an analogy to the auto industry. Uh, and my Republican colleagues had, when there were um, deficiencies and safety issues related to tires uh, in the industry, they immediately had oversight hearings. And my colleague, Dr. Burgess said, safety cannot wait. Well, he is right, safety cannot wait. And now we're talking about the safety of every single American. So why weren't we prepared? And what are we doing to be prepared? And whistleblowers play a very important role. And that is telling us we're not prepared and we're not doing what we need to do to become prepared. So it was an important hearing. It helped put transparency on actions that had not occurred and actions that aren't yet occurring. And he also answered a number of questions, like the president says, we have enough tests to test everyone. And Dr. Bright answered that question, no. And we aren't gonna have enough tests for some time. So we need people to tell us the truth and we need to learn why things happen. And then we need to develop plans to make sure and strategies that ensure they don't happen again. Well, do you do worry that, this, that these serial attacks on whistleblowers um, will chill the ability or willingness of people to come forward, uh, specifically within the area of how we deal with this crisis. We don't know where the money is going, who's allocating the money, whether there are backroom deals on any of this, you know, and, 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 you know, lots and lots of money is being laid out. So oversight seems in order. Are you worried that it's going to be hard to get to the facts? Oh, I think it's going to be hard to get to the facts, but we have the uh, Jim Clyburn's chair in a committee that's similar to the Truman Commission that was set up um, uh, World War II. Uh, we have lots of people, the Oversight Energy and Commerce has set up an oversight plan of a number of these issues, but getting the facts remains difficult. You know why I believe in whistleblowers? I still think that there are people that care that worry and love their country, and that the, they do per, fear for their own personal safety. And by the way, 
we have seen demonstrated the need for them to have that worry. It's not paranoia, it's real. But I still think they love their country enough to come forward and give the facts and tell us when we are not prepared, how money is being misspent, how our nation is being threatened. And I still think and believe in the good of many, many, most, let me say 99% of the civil servants we have serving in government. Uh, well, thank you for that. You know, and thank you for spending the time with us as I think about your comment. And I think back particularly to your comment about Rosie the Riveter. I happened to be watching the Ken Burns, the war, the, the look at World War II uh, just last week. Uh, and there was a bit of it that was about the Willow Run factory in Ypsilanti. And it talked about the miracle of being able to deliver a bomber every X number of minutes. Uh, and the, the world had never seen it. And that the, that the United States, in some respects, won World War II in these plants, in the streets, with everybody setting aside partisanship, with everybody um, working together towards a common goal. And that's what seems to me a wartime stance of a government needs to, needs to look like, a facing crisis needs to look like, uh, rather than what we've got now. And, and, and frankly, I, I think your, your comments have captured that, and I'm, I'm very grateful for it. Um, thank you. We're now, Ypsilanti is now the arsenal of health, and as is Southeast Michigan, and we're really proud of that. You know, and I'm very lucky. Uh, many of the original Rosies, not many now, they're, um, I've gone to too many of their funerals the last couple of years, but I've been very lucky because I spent a lot of time with the Rosies and organized a number of events to know them, to know their spirit, their energy, their passion, their courage, their determination. And I think that they represent the best of what America is. And that spirit that they had is still very alive and well and the backbone of America. Uh, indeed. In fact, they're a great example to all of us right now. Representative Debbie Diggle, thank you very much for taking time out. We're sorry that you have lost so many friends and, and, and associates in the midst of this crisis, but are grateful for your leadership. And uh, perhaps we'll coax you back here again sometime in the future to talk a little more. Thank you very, very much. Thank you, and I would look forward to it.